Hey, J. Crew, it's me, Liel. And this week, well, I'm all alone. Stephanie still hanging out with her adorable baby, and Mark had a book come out this week about the Tree of Life shooting, so he's out there in his fancy book tour. And me, well, I'm in my library drinking Jamaican rum and feeling unloved. So, rather than just mope around the house and bring you down with me, I want to tell you a story. It's not too long. But I promise it will blow your mind. It's a story about how a shaggy-haired, food-obsessed, draft-dodging son of a Brooklyn appetizing shop owner came to inspire one of the most beloved characters in popular culture. A character so iconic that you wouldn't think it was based on anything anywhere near real, especially not on a Jewish guy and Mark Oppenheimer's beloved neighbor named Arnold. I am Arnold Gorlick. I was born December 15th, 1946 in Brooklyn. My father owned the best appetizing store in Brooklyn, kind of the Russ and Daughters of Brooklyn, famous appetizers. In the academic year 1969 and 70, I had been in my sixth year as an undergraduate because I was evading the draft in the Vietnam War. I had a scheme to stay in school and evade the draft board for as long as it took until I got out of the draft or the war was over. So I pursued this course of borderline failure where I would fail a course that was absolutely essential to graduate. So I majored in philosophy and minored in music and the classical guitar. And I would fail aesthetics all the time, which I needed as a, I needed for both my minor and my major and I would have to go back to school. While Arnold was in school, he needed a place to live. Now, you haven't known Arnold for very long, but it won't surprise you to learn that a kid who kept flunking classes and evading the draft wasn't exactly swimming in cash. But Arnold was nothing if not crafty. So he found a brilliant solution. An efficiency apartment, sort of a room to let in someone else's home that had its own entrance and could be had for very cheap. And the minute Arnold walked into the house he would soon call home, he realized he'd hit the jackpot. This house was owned by John and Pat Allen. John Allen was the head of television advertising for McCann Erickson, which in those days was the second largest advertising firm in the world. Three acres of land, a motorboat, a sailboat, a dock, but I don't want you to think of elegant. It was very rustic and unpretentious. The original floors, split beam ceilings, five fireplaces with the cooking implements still in it, some of them big. And I would have an efficiency apartment on the other side of a pantry uh, where I could slide the door across and put the hook across when they came out. And they came out once every three weeks or two weeks. Why would the Allens, wealthy and sophisticated, keep a dude like Arnold around? Well, for one thing, it was the 60s, man, a much groovier time. But for another, the Allens liked having a guy who fed Ivan, their cat, and kept away the burglars and made sure none of the pipes burst or the roof caved in. But sometimes, the svelte ad man and the Brooklyn boy chick didn't exactly gel. I had a construction job and I had thick, long hair. 
that was unruly, covered in concrete dust like it just came in from the range. I could walk in the house, and John would be sitting with uh, Rod Serling and just roll his eyes when I would walk in, or he'd be sitting with Cliff Robertson and Dina Merrill in the house, and then Arnold would walk in. But the main perk of living with the Allens wasn't bumping into the rich and famous. It was the more worldly stuff, like occasionally walking up to John Allen's bathroom and borrowing his razor or his Protein 29 hair tonic or anything else that was lying around the house and struck Arnold's fancy. Sharing is caring, right? And nothing around the house had more of an appeal than the gorgeous, bottomless cookie jar. They had this enormous cookie jar in that pantry that I walked back through every day. And I would look, and there was a lot in there. And they were nothing like Oreo. They were just extraordinary cookies, and I was amazed by them. And I would take a cookie, and little did I know there was only one or two cookies left in the cookie jar in their wrappers. Wait a minute. Didn't Arnold realize the cookies would eventually run out? I had no self-awareness that I was depleting it by taking even a little at a time over time. I thought it's, I could take a cookie, and they wouldn't mind if I took a cookie. Let me tell you, 69 and 70, I didn't have any money. My friends didn't have any money. They used to have things from the telephone company called candy grams, and you didn't have to pay for it right away. It came on your phone bill, and we would smoke marijuana and get stoned and order a two-pound box of a candy gram, which would come to our house, and we'd fight over the fruits and the nuts. (laughs) It was a different era. Got it. So, stoned, broke, and hungry. Makes sense. So, were the Allens cool about Arnold eating all of their cookies? They never said anything to me until one day I walked in my efficiency apartment, which had its own entrance, and on my little driveway... A big foil box around three feet high with green ribbons and then a small package wrapped the same way and then one little package on its side wrapped the same way and I opened up the big box with no note and it was a dozen boxes of cookies. Then I opened the second package, it was my own bottle of Protein 29. Then I opened the third one, it was my own razor blade. (laughs) The fact that there was no note, never a complaint, they got me, you know, he, he got me. That's enough of a charming story right there. The story of Shaggy Arnold, affable cookie thief. But a short while later, a commercial started airing on TV. An ad for a new snack from Frito-Lay called Munchos. A bald puppet with an oval head, dressed conservatively in a suit and a tie, holds the snack in his hand. He is standing in front of a blackboard covered with scientific-looking schematics of potato chips. And he begins his lecture. Introducing Munchos from Frito-Lay. It's the all-new potato snack. Not a potato chip, a potato crisp. Then, something strange happens. Something you wouldn't expect. The camera shifts to the left, revealing a monster. He's pink, with a big, gaping mouth and wild, googly eyes. He grabs a bag and bellows out the product's name. Munchos! The monster stuffs his mouth with munchos, sending a torrent of crumbs flying everywhere. As I said, there's more to a muncho. There was more to a muncho. 
Americans soon fell in love, not so much with a snack, but with a furry maniac who chomped on it with such glee. Its creator was a young puppeteer who invented it after being hired by John Allen's company. His name? Well, maybe you've heard of him. Hello there. My name is Jim Henson, and I'm a puppeteer. And the pink puppet's name? You know it. The hungry pink slob was called Arnold the Monster. He was so popular that John Allen's company ordered more and more ads starring the creature, and Jim Henson enlisted the help of his friend and collaborator, a young puppeteer named Frank Oz. You may recognize some of his other voices, too. Do or do not. There is no try. Where are all the fishes? Oh, they're down there, Bert. They are. Sure. If you'd like, I'll catch some and show you. Oh, you will? Mm-hmm. Easy as that. Sure. Ha! Oh, come in, please. Let, let me explain, Kermit. Uh, my name is Miss Piggy. Uh, I, I am a model. Encouraged by the popularity of Arnold, the muncho-eating monster, John Allen offered Jim Hansen a huge contract to keep the ads going. To his surprise, Hansen said no. He was working, he said, on a new TV show and had a good idea for his monster. The show was called Sesame Street, and on its very first episode, there he was, Arnold the Monster. He was blue this time, not pink, but he was still hungry. When Kermit the Frog handed him the letter W, Arnold began nibbling on it, turning it first into an N, then a V, and then finally into an I before trying to eat Kermit himself. Some people will eat anything. Uh, so I hope, I hope this has been an informative little talk on the letter W or V or easy boy there. Take it easy now. Or N or whatever. Uh, cool it. Cool it there, fellow. Uh, so, uh, hey, listen, I think I hear your mother calling you. Kids loved him. So he soon came back. This time, eating the snack for which he would become famous. Cookies. You know, like those in the two-foot jar, another shaggy guy named Arnold made an impression for stealing and then eating messily, leaving crumbs everywhere. Now what starts with the letter C? Cookie starts with C. Let's think of other things that starts with C. Uh, ah, who cares about other things? C is for cookie. That's good enough for me. And then the 60s gave way to the 70s, and Arnold drew a good number in the draft lottery, and he could finally go ahead and graduate. He left the Allens' home soon thereafter, but he remained friendly with John and his wife, Pat. And a few years later, in the sober mid-70s, he went over for dinner. And John, well, John had a story to tell. Now, you have to know John. John would tell the most ironic stories that if you didn't know they were ironic, they were offensive or outright lies. And he was the type of guy, when he told the story, no matter how it went over, he never said, just kidding. You just had to know. And he looked at me and he said um, that, you know, the cookie monster was based on my personality. I looked at his wife, Pat, and I said, is this true? She goes, I don't know. Never said anything to me. So I didn't know. Was John pulling my leg or whatever? Cookie, 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 
I mean, sure, the monster was named Arnold. And yeah, it loved cookies. And it's true that it ate very much like Arnold himself still eats. You have to know how food-centric I am. I sometimes eat unconsciously from other people's plates. I think about food all the time. I grew up with the most amazing food in my father's store. And I'm a messy eater too. My wife is always brushing crumbs off my chest. I said, that's how I eat. I can't help it. But still, who would believe a story like that? If I came to you and told you that you were the real-life inspiration for, say, Peter Pan or Bugs Bunny or Mickey Mouse, would you ever believe me? Arnold didn't, or at least not entirely. Until, that is, he had proof. Well, it turned out that uh, some years later, was it 82? I don't remember what it was, when Dark Crystal came out. Cheryl Henson was an undergraduate at Yale, and she and I was managing the York Square Cinemas on Broadway, and she arranged to have a screening for the Yale Film Society or the Yale Law School Film Society of Dark Crystal, and I got to meet Jim Henson and then ask him the origins of the Cookie Monster, which he confirmed that he knew John Allen and that this concept arose from his tenant. Is the real-life Cookie Monster, then, anything like his furry alter ego? For one thing, like the Cookie Monster, Arnold has spent the last few years trying to eat a bit healthier. He still loves some Tate's chocolate chip cookies, but he's also really into peppers now. Ivar. Ivar is great. It's pepper flesh charred on Orochtil, on the grill, and then you mix oil and garlic and spices with it, and it's the most delicious thing that you can imagine. But more importantly, he's retained a Muppet-esque sense of childlike wonder. That, he says, is the secret to life. And I read a book a long time ago by Ashley Montague called Growing Young. He said, now there are primary characteristics of growing old. Uh, your skin gets wrinkled, your hair falls out, it turns colors. You get out of bed in the morning like a bent paper clip. He said, but there are secondary characteristics of youth which you could retain to the end of your life. And what are they, he would say. Well, spontaneity, curiosity, resilience, and to me the most important was uh, playfulness. You retain those qualities to the end of your life and you could remain youthful to the end. My friend Bill Minetti used to say the secret of life is to die as young as you can as late as possible. and blue, me set me fuzzy and blue, from head to bottom of shoe, that right me fuzzy and blue, me too, we're fuzzy and blue, yippee, we're fuzzy and blue, we three, oh, don't you wish you, we're fuzzy and blue, like me, and me, and me. Unorthodox is brought to you by Tablet Magazine on the web at tabletmag.com. Subscribe to our newsletter or send us your thoughts at unorthodox at tabletmag.com or call us at 914-570-4869. We often come to you live to book us or to advertise with us. Email producer Josh Cross, that's Cross with a K, the Jewish way, at jcross.com 
at tabletmag.com. Go to bit.ly slash unortho shirt to find our unorthodox shirts, mugs, and onesies. No baby is too young to advertise our show. Follow us on Instagram at unorthodox podcast and Twitter at unorthodox underscore pod. Join our Facebook group where all the good discussions last long after the show is done. Our show is produced by Josh Cross and Sarah Fredman Ader. Our associate producer is Robert Scaramuccia. Our production fellow is Quinn Waller. Our artwork is by Esther Werdiger. Our theme music is by Golem online at golemrocks.com. Our mailbox theme is by Steve Barton. Rabbinic supervision this week by the late, great Jim Hansen. And we come to you this week from Sesame Street. Shalom, friends. <laughs>